Um, <clears throat> my daughter is different from my son. And one of the ways in which they're different is my son is, uh, he's a lot more cautious and careful. Whereas my daughter is, uh, a little more wild and, uh, and jumps into things and, uh, doesn't worry about consequences quite as much. In a great way, it, it shows in that she has got a lot of faith in me. So if we go to the pool and she stands at the edge of the pool and I say, jump in, I'll catch you, I promise. She will launch right in and get out and go to the edge of the pool and try to jump in before I'm even ready to catch her a second time. She's got a lot of faith that I will do what I've said uh, for her. That same kind of confident faith is something that we see in the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. It's Psalm 132, if you want to turn there a while. Uh, psalm 132 is, in our uh, Bibles, called a psalm of ascents. And the psalms of ascents are a group of psalms that were sung by Jews who were traveling to the temple, to Mount Zion, where the temple was in Jerusalem, after the exile, when they returned. And they would, they would sing these songs as they would travel to worship the Lord. Psalm 132, however, was originally written far earlier than that time. It was originally written probably by the time of Solomon, hundreds of years before that. But after the exile, hundreds of years later after the psalm was written, Jews compiled these psalms together into Psalms of Ascents, and they chose Psalm 132 to be one of them. To sing while they would go to Zion, to sing after the temple was destroyed, while there was no king sitting on the throne, which is fascinating and shows a lot of faith because of what we're about to read in Psalm 132. So would you turn there as we look at it, and we'll see how Psalm 132 expresses such faith in God, considering what they were singing here in these words on their way to the temple. This is Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. And vow, he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. 
His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Would you pray with me? God, we uh, were reminded last week how um, from Deuteronomy you say uh, the secret things belong to you, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. This is a psalm, God, that you've given to us in your word. You've revealed it to us. I pray then that you would make so that we understand it, that you would give us the ability to see Jesus Christ rightly in it, to know how it applies to our lives. God, that we would take Psalm 132 and internalize it, that it would be in our hearts and be something that is for us and for our children. Would you please do that for us this morning? In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Uh, the first half of the song brings out two things. The first is the psalmist's request to God. And the second thing is it brings out the reason the psalmist gives for why God should answer his request. That's the first half. And then the second half of the song is all about God's response to the psalmist there. So that's what we're going to look at, those three points. The request that the psalmist gives, the reason he gives for why God should answer that request, and then thirdly, the response that God gives him. So jumping in, let's look at the request itself. The request that the psalmist makes is that God would dwell in the midst of his people as their king forever. It's the great desire of God's people that God would dwell with them in their midst. Look at David's oath in verse 2. How David swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I won't close my eyes, I won't rest, etc., until, verse 5, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David wanted God to dwell with Israel, symbolized by the ark. Do you remember the ark of the covenant that God had Israel make and placed in the tabernacle? The ark's important because you see where the ark is, there God sits on his throne. That's how it was designed to be. The tabernacle where the ark was placed was actually designed in many ways like a king's palace. And the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant sat behind the curtain was designed in many ways like a throne room with cherubim, golden cherubim engraved on the ark uh, in gold, like the angels that are in heaven flying around God's throne, crying, holy, holy, holy. The Bible says that God is enthroned above the cherubim and that the ark then is his footstool, is what we read about in Psalm 132. Because God is invisible, the, the point of all this is that the ark is this physical, material, visible symbol of God's reigning on earth. It's like you're seeing his throne and there is the Lord with the ark as his footstool under his feet. When the, this psalm was written, until this time, God's ark was in a tent. That's what the tabernacle was. Think mobile. You can take it down, pack it up, and keep on going and set it up somewhere else. Think also, therefore, not permanent. It wouldn't stay in the same place. It would move around to this place and to that part. And in David's time, the ark was in a rural wooded area called Ja'ar. 
Other places in the Bible calls it Kiriath Jerim. It's the same place, almost like it was just forgotten there. And verses 6 to 7 of our passage, they reenact, in a way, how King David brought the ark from Jar to Jerusalem, where the temple, a solid, immovable structure, would be built. And so in verse 7, we see worshipers getting, going to get the ark at Jaar and bringing it to Jerusalem to worship God there. Do you see what's going on? The ark in the tabernacle, wandering around in the desert with Israel for those 40 years, it was almost like God roaming the earth, looking for a place where he would plant his flag, where he would build a city with foundations and say, here's where I'll reign. And Israel, his people followed him wherever he went. And their great desire, David's great desire, was to be where he was, for him to reign in their midst, never to leave, to find a place where God would settle and not uproot again. That's what David swore to find. You see the desire of the people to have the king dwell in their midst here. Let's go to where he dwells, they say. Let's bow down to him and worship him there. So we see the desire in David's oath here and in the worshipers to build a dwelling place for God. We also see that it's the great desire of God's people that he would dwell with them in the prayer of the psalmist. Look at verse 8 with me. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. These words echo the words of Moses. When Israel was in the desert, traveling around, whenever... uh, Whenever the ark would up, would uproot, would go to travel, to go from one camp to be at another camp, this is what we read in the book of Numbers. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And now, in Psalm 132, God's people are saying, Now, God, would you arise one last time? from Jair, in order to go to Jerusalem and settle there permanently, so that you'll stay there forever as the king in our midst. That's what they're asking here. So, what about you? Is this your great desire, people of God? That God would dwell in our midst? That God would be with you? Of all the things you long for in your life, is for God to be in your midst at the top of the list. To gather with God's people to worship the Lord where he is, whether that's on a Sunday morning or during the week at home groups or with your family after dinner or personally just on your own in the mornings before the day gets going. Is that your greatest desire? Or are you apathetic about it a lot of times? It's dangerous to be apathetic about it. Because either God is your king, and with that come all sorts of blessings, as we'll see, or God is not your king, and all of those king's enemies, as we read in verse 18, will be put to shame, clothed with shame. It's actually what it says. So confess this to God. I think it's very normal, if you don't feel a burning passion 24-7, that God would be with you, I think that's not abnormal for God's people. But take that and confess that to the Lord and ask that he would make that your great desire. Have you ever prayed, God, 
I don't feel a great desire to have you with me right now. I, I, don't, I don't long to be in your dwelling place. I don't long to be in your courts. I'd rather be at home on the couch, or I'd rather be uh, whatever it is. I don't know. Have you ever prayed, God, would you make that my desire? Would you make me want to want to be with you? And then take every opportunity you can to gather with God's people, to worship him, and to and encourage one another to do it. Did you notice I say, let us go. Come on, let's go to church. Are you going to that prayer meeting? Are you going to come to home group? Do you want to come and worship God with us after dinner tonight? Let's, let's do that. Encourage one another to do these things. Well, that's the request that the psalmist gives. Let's look secondly at the reason that he says, God, would you grant this request? The psalmist recognizes that the reason God should grant the request to dwell with his people and to bless them in all of these ways is because of their king. Look at verse 1 with me. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord. Do you notice that the psalmist does not look to his own merits for the reason why God should answer him? He doesn't say, God, would you hear this prayer and be with me because I made sure I did my devotions. I didn't miss a single day this week. I took Sunday morning off, but I'm at church anyways, right? No, he doesn't say, God, would you please hear my prayer? Would you please hear my quest to dwell with me? Because I was intentional about leaving my friend group and sitting with the kid at the lunch table at school who doesn't have any friends. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, God, would you please hear my request? Because I've been tithing a full 10% of my gross income, not my net income. That should count for something, Right? He doesn't say that. Instead, he calls for God to remember David and what David has done. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, how he swore. He's saying, mighty God, would you dwell with us? Would you bless us? Not because of us, but because of King David. And look also at verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, there it is, David's sake again, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Bible talks about the anointed one. That's He's referring to the king at this point. Kings were anointed with oil when they became kings. So sometimes in the Bible, they'll be called the anointed one. So he's saying, God, would you please treat your anointed one, your king, with favor? Would you treat your king like a father who loves his son? Imagine, um, Imagine a son's got a birthday coming up, and the father says... Son, what would you like for your birthday? And the son says, I want for my birthday just to spend the day with you. Would you please spend the day with me? Well, what is any father worth his salt going to do? Yeah, of course I'll spend the day with you. I'll take off work. Let's go out. And on top of that, I'll take you out for breakfast too. And I'd like to buy you a gift. And later on in the day, we'll go get ice cream and see a movie or whatever. I don't know, whatever it is. But the psalmist is saying, God... When your king comes to you and he asks you to bless him, when your king comes to you and asks you to be with him and to dwell with your people, then please hear and answer your king. God, would you bless your people by listening to their king? Do you catch that? God is blessing his people not because of them, but through the king that they have. That's the reason that the psalmist gives for why God should grant the request. So that's the first half. That's the request. That's the reason for the request. And then 
let's look now on the second half of the song. God's response to uh, this request. And in response, God shows us something about himself that we just love. And that is that he gives to us far more than we can ever give to him. In the first half, we saw David say, God, I swear, I vow to build a temple for your ark. And in the second half, God says, David, you swore to build a material building that will one day crumble. But wait until you wait, wait until you see what I will swear to you. I'll flip the tables on you and you're going to be blessed with something everlasting. The first thing that we see God swears is that he promises to give a king who would bless the people forever. Look at verses 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. By the way, did you notice in 10, verse 10, he said, God, please don't turn away the face of your anointed one. And immediately God says, I will never turn away from this oath. You don't want me to turn away the face of your anointing? Well, I'll tell you what I will not turn away. I will not turn away from this promise that I will give you. And he promises, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. So he promises to David that if they obey me, one of your sons will reign on your throne forever. And with that reign will come all sorts of blessings. This reign of the kings that God promises on this throne, this reign would be growing in power all the time. That's what we see in verse 17. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. He describes, he describes the power of this reign like a horn. Don't think like a trumpet blowing. Think like the horn of a rhinoceros or a ram or antlers or, or that kind of horn. And it's, it's sprouting. It's blossoming. It's growing. It's getting bigger and more and more and more. Do you, uh, think of the, um, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it later. I don't want to give it away right now. It's growing. It's getting bigger. This rain would also be unending. Again, the second half of verse 17. He says, I have prepared a lamp. He, he, sometimes in the Bible, God will describe the king of Israel as the lamp of Israel. And God's saying, I'm going to make sure that this lamp does not go out. I will trim the wick. I will keep the oil going. It will be burning. I've prepared this lamp to keep going. This rain will not end. With this rain will come victory in verse 18. I'll clothe all this, this king's enemies with shame. And with this rain will come glory and prosperity. This king will have a crown that sparkles that shines, that gleams like the sun on a thousand diamonds. All of these blessings which would flow down onto the king's people. Because as we've already seen, if the king is blessed, the people are blessed through the king. Well, it all sounds nice, fine and dandy, except for that one little word in there. That if word. that messes everything up. If, in verse 11, uh, verse 12, if your sons keep my command. If you've ever read the books of First and Second Kings, it can be a real letdown. Because over and over and over in the book of First and Second Kings, we read about all these kings, sons of David, that God gives to his people, and they just 
time and time and time again, blow it. They are unable to do it. But God cares so much about keeping his oath that he would not let the fact that we are sinful keep it from happening. Instead, he cared so much about keeping the oath that he sent his own son from heaven to assume a human body and soul in order to keep the covenant for his people. Jesus is the promised king through whom all of us, brothers and sisters, all of us are blessed. Jesus is the son of David who rules over God's people. And Jesus' reign is powerful and ever-growing in power. His reign is like a horn that's sprouting and blossoming and getting bigger. That's this is what I was going to say earlier. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. Do you remember that famous verse that comes around Christmas time? For to us a child is given, to, to us a, a son is given, to us a child is born, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Jesus' reign, it will be on his shoulders. Jesus will be the one who rules over everyone. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then here's what it says. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's going to just continue growing. He will continue growing in power and glory and wonder and might, and he will never stop ruling. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has all the power and authority over the sins that you've struggled with this week. He has all authority and power as king, as your king, over Satan who has tried so hard to trip you up this week. And he has all authority and power over the world, which in so many places has raged against his church. He is lifting up his horn over all the earth. Your king is. And Jesus' reign will never end. His lamp will never, ever go out. We're used to seeing good things coming to an end, aren't we? Um, vacation ends. Summer ends. School's going to start up again soon. The cold weather's going to set in. Maybe your cancer returns when you thought it had gone away. We're so used to bad thing, good things coming to an end and bad things happening that when things go well, do you ever find you're just waiting for the bad thing to happen? My marriage is going well. When is my husband going to get angry at me? You know, or my kids are doing well. When am I going to get a phone call with bad news? Or whatever it is, I don't know. You, you name it. You're just waiting for the shoe to drop. That's how we are. We're just so used to good things coming to an end, right? Brothers and sisters, Jesus has sat down on his throne in heaven never to get up again. You will never again have a different king. There's not going to be a change of regime, a new administration. He is and he will remain king forever. It won't change next week. It won't change next year. It won't change in a billion years from now or for all eternity. You can rest assured he's there. He's not going anywhere. And Jesus will have complete victory over all his enemies. Even now, in heaven, Jesus is gaining victory over his enemies, over the world, by spreading his kingdom through the spread of the gospel. And when he returns, the Bible describes it, he will put his enemies to shame. The devil and the world will never come near to hurt his people again. And Jesus' reign will be glorious and prosperous 
again, that image of a crown that is sparkling and gleaming, which we sang about, crowning with many crowns. The Lord of peace, the Lord of love, the Lord of life. This psalm is all about how glorious Jesus is. It's just all about, it's all about Jesus. It's what it is. It's not even all about us. So the question is then, what does it have to do with us? What does it have to do with me? Why does it matter to me? Well, let me uh, give you just one example of the way that this psalm matters to us. This week, I felt, I felt very dull, spiritually speaking. Um, amazingly, I felt really dull, spiritually speaking, with respect to this passage. I was studying it. I'm reading about it. I'm trying to think of the way it matters to us. And just for some reason, I felt so weak. I felt like it didn't matter. It didn't move me whatsoever. I had no way how to bring these truths. Jesus is king. Okay. God dwells with Okay. He dwells with us. I didn't know how to bring them down from heaven to earth. It just didn't feel like it mattered. I couldn't, I didn't, I wasn't moved by it. I don't know if you ever felt that way, but I, I wrestled a ton with it for that reason. What Psalm 132 teaches when you, is for when you feel that way, or when you come into this room feeling like you're dragging a sin with you that looms large over your head, or you can't you can't shake the guilt of, of something that you've done or said or whatever it is. What Psalm 132 teaches is that what matters for your blessing and for your eternity is not you. It's not how you feel. It's not how you performed. What matters is who your king is. So we can be bold and we can pray for the kinds of things that Psalm 132 prays for. But instead of pointing God back to David and what David's done, we point God back to Jesus and what Jesus has done. God, would you be with me? Not because of me, but for the sake of your servant, Jesus, my king. God, because of his obedience to your law on my behalf, and because of his death on the cross in my place to pay the price for my sins, therefore, mighty one of Jacob, mighty God, sheer power, you who just breathed worlds into existence, you who thunders with lightning and thunder and all the roaring of the oceans, mighty God, would you choose to walk with me today? Would you make me persevere? Would you please conquer my sin that I just feel like has been pummeling me this week? Would you protect me from the devil? I feel like he's nagging me unendingly. Would you look on me with favor? Would you answer my prayers? And because of what Jesus has done, he will hear you. He will dwell with you. That's the other promise in, in the second half of this, uh, of this psalm. God promised that he would give his people a king to bless them. And through this king, God says he will dwell with you. God has promised to dwell forever with his people.
See verses 13 and 14? The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. In Israel's day, uh, where God dwelled was Mount Zion. It was what, Well, it was Mount Zion. It was the temple in Israel, the literal Mount Zion there in Jerusalem. That's where God dwelled. But that was always designed to be a temporary picture of the way that God would dwell forever with his church. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, our King, God has actually answered the prayer of Psalm 132. He's answered this very prayer, and we're the beneficiaries of it. He's taken residence in us, amazingly, to reign in our hearts, never to leave. So, we read in in Ephesians chapter 1, He chose us in Him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Psalm 132, the Lord has chosen Zion. God has chosen us. It's like the, the, the ark wandering around the wilderness. No, I'm not going to settle there. I'm not going to settle here. That's not it. That's not it. There. That's where I want to be. God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So God has chosen to to dwell with us. In fact, in the words of Psalm 132, God has desired to dwell with us. He actually, brothers and sisters, he has desired that you would be the people that he dwells with forever. Why? I have no idea. It's certainly not because we're the most holy and righteous people in the world. We're not. It's certainly not because we're the most powerful people in the world or the most intelligent people in the world or whatever. I don't know. We've done the most things that would make so God would say, ooh, I want to make sure I'm with those people. They are the cool crowd. No, that's not it at all. But for some reason, he has chosen to love us and to put his name on you. And with his presence comes all sorts of blessings. That's what we see in verses 15 and 16. I will abundantly bless her provisions. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, not just one or two, not just here's an example or here's an example, you can take this one, but leave that one, take this one, choose four out of five. Every spiritual blessing God has blessed us with. Her poor I will satisfy with bread. We're given not just physical bread, we're given the bread of heaven. Jesus Christ, who nourishes not just our bodies, but our souls for all eternity. Her priests, I will clothe the salvation. The Bible describes us as a kingdom of priests, so that God will accept our prayers. He'll actually hear them. He'll accept our worship as half-hearted and pathetic as it so often is, because we're clothed with Jesus' perfect righteousness. Just like the priests in the Old Testament were clothed with beautiful garments, God clothes us with perfection, not ours, but Jesus, and he'll accept our prayers and our worship because of it. And in verse 16, her saints will shout with joy, because the thing that we desire most, God has granted to us. He's given us himself. Even, just think, just today, Sunday, August 14th, when 
on the other side of the world, the sun first was rising. All over the world, God's people have been rising with the sun and gathering together to worship him in all sorts of different languages and places and people. So that in Asia, and then in Africa, and in Europe, as the sun has gone over the world, every hour of the day, God's people are rising this morning, today, to give him praise and worship and to shout for joy for what he's done. Just think about that. Well, that's Psalm 132 for us. But let me end with this. Do you ever feel like the things just aren't really true? Maybe like what I described earlier. Um, it just it doesn't move you. You leave and you know it's great stuff, but I don't, you know, I don't know it. The, the bully who shoves me in the back at school feels far more real than Jesus sitting on his throne in heaven to me. Or, or my depression, which keeps me in bed well into the hours of the day with my curtains drawn, feels far more real to me than the fact that God is there with me in this room and should cheer me up and make me shout for joy. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel like Jesus isn't working in your life the way you'd like him to be? Well, let me go back to the context in the Psalms of Ascents. Remember where this psalm is. In the Psalms of Ascents, Jews would take these songs and they would sing them after they returned from exile, while they would travel up to the hills in Jerusalem to worship God there. And at that time, there was no king on the throne. Jews sang this song with faith in God's promise that one day he would fulfill this oath. That one day there would be, from this stump of a dynasty of David's that we see, a shoot would spring up. With faith in the promise that someday a horn would sprout up and grow out of nothing. And that one day they would be blessed through that king. They looked forward to that. There's a sense in which we look backwards at the fact that that has already come, and Jesus Christ has done all those things. But there's also a sense in which we, too, look forward. In heaven, right now, Jesus is preparing a place for us. You know how the Bible describes that place? Sometimes it describes it as a heavenly Mount Zion. It describes it as a new Jerusalem. And our lives are pictured as a pilgrimage to that place. And Jesus will one day return from preparing a place for us there, and he will come to bring us to be with him. And he will reign there forever in person. And there, our faith is going to be turned to sight. There will be no mismatch between what we know with our minds and what we feel in our lives or experience. There'll be no mismatch between what we believe to be true and what we actually see around us day to day. Let me end with um, a description of that place. It's from the book of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God has sworn an oath. He will surely not turn from it. Our King Jesus will lead us there, and we will be with him forever. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for these promises. And I pray this morning that you would please give us the faith we need to believe them. The faith we need to look back at Christ, seeing all that he's done for us. The faith to believe that you are now, through your spirit in our hearts, dwelling in our midst. Faith to believe that one day our faith will be sight. And all of these things that we're waiting for and, and this this. Uh, oh, this horrible feeling of knowing one thing on the one hand, but feeling something very different. It'll be no more. I pray, God, that you would give us joy as we walk out of these doors, knowing that everywhere we go, you are with us. You will never leave us until we come to be home with you forever. Our faith is in our King Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.